reverence for God, no seeking of God. And when we move through the book of 1 Samuel, just as a real short uh, outline, we've seen a number of things happen. God raises up Samuel as his beacon of light. When everything on the horizon looks like it's just going to get worse and worse, and there's huge corruption, especially within the priesthood, God raises up Samuel as both a, a judge and a prophet. Eventually, Israel demands a king. They say, we want a king like the other nations have. And they don't really know what they're asking. Samuel warns them what's going to happen if they ask for a king like all the other nations have. Um, they're given Saul, who at the start, maybe we see some grace notes of promise, but pretty soon we see, oh, he is a king like the other nations have. A king who is obsessed with power and is jealous and wants to hold on to power and sees everything through the lens of what's in it for me? How does my life, how, do, how does my kingdom serve me as the king? And he's falling into the same trap that Israel has, which is neglecting God. And he's mechanically going through the motions of certain things, but we just see him not seeking God in all these situations where it would be really, really important to God raises up David to be a king within Israel. He has David anointed, but then there's a delay. The anointing happens, and God says, you're going to be king one day, but I'm not done with Saul yet. And then as David grows in prominence and God's blessings on David, God removes his blessing from Saul after many second, third, fourth chances. And then as sort of the winds of cultural change shift and, and social change shift and everyone starts celebrating who David is and saying, David's amazing. We can't wait for him to be king. We would like a king like David. This is awesome. Saul gets really jealous. And so the last few chapters have been this cat and mouse game where um, Saul's mental and emotional instability has been so significant. He's tried to kill David twice. David goes on the run. He goes into the wilderness. He gathers some a very motley crew of individuals and their families, and he lives life on the run. And there are these moments where it seems like Saul realizes what he's doing wrong, and he confesses and seems to repent, but then he's overcome by his own jealousy again. And in chapter 26, this was the second time that David had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't do it because David said, this is still the Lord's anointed. God might have removed his blessing, but Saul is still the king. And this isn't my place to remove him for God. God will deal with Saul in his own way. I'm not to lay a hand against the Lord's anointed. And this is when David and one of his military commanders, they sneak into Saul's camp and they steal the spear and the water. And then they kind of let Saul know from a distance and say, hey, look, like I could have killed you. This is how close I was to you. And Saul seems penitent. He seems like he's sorry. He invites David back over to make peace, and David's like, no, you have shown me <laughs> that I can't trust you, so you call a servant over, I'll send this stuff back to you. And in verse 25, and this is what's really important in the context of today, of chapter 26, Saul said to David, may you be blessed, David, my son, you will do great things and will surely triumph. So David went his way and Saul returned home. After this kind of prophetic affirmation by Saul, the next chapter, chapter 27, that we're in today, it opens with these words. David thought to himself, 
One of these days, I'm going to be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Now, this is the key to understanding the whole chapter, so don't kind of rush through it because it's the first verse, and we're actually going to spend almost all of our time on this verse, and then we'll look at the rest of the chapter next week. But this verse is the anchor, and it's the hinge point of this entire chapter. David says to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. In the simplest way possible, what is David doing in verse 1 here? How would you describe what David is doing? He's going to the enemy. Why is he going to the enemy? What do we know about David's head and heart state from just this verse alone? Right. He says in his own heart, he says what? He says exactly the opposite of what Saul, probably maybe even months or years before this, said to him, which is, you're surely going to prosper God's hands on your life. You're, you're an unstoppable force because God is behind you. And David is now in a place where he doesn't believe that. And he says, I'm surely going to die. So I might as well go over to the enemy's side. That's very, very significant. We don't know exactly how long David's been on the run. On the long end, it's 10 years. On the shorter end, it's three or four. But it's been a long time that David has been in this kind of nomadic, on the run, can I trust Saul, can I not? And as the people around him have grown and as the families around him have grown, he's borne more and more responsibility to take care of them and to protect them. He has lived with a cloud of threat uh, almost always looming over him. And what we're seeing here is he's giving up. Right? We're seeing him not even seek God. Why is David so discouraged? Why is he so discouraged? Because life on the run is really tough. It's easy to be discouraged when you have people tell you great promises of awesome stuff that God's going to do in your life. And then Monday rolls over and October rolls over and 2020 rolls over and 2021. And there's this long, and there's no fulfillment. And you're in the same situation. We're seeing here weariness. I use the word discouragement, but discouragement isn't even the, the best word. Um, what do you hear? What, what is the difference to you between discouragement and weariness? Does anyone have any input on that? Like what, what is the, I think there's a, there's a nuance between those words. They're not synonyms. What's the difference between being discouraged and being, being weary. Sorry, say that again? Yeah, for sure, part of it would be the depth of the exhaustion, right? You can, have a, you can be having a great day, have a momentary discouragement, and then you bounce back really quick because there's a lot of other momentum to your day and 
you had, you had a good night's sleep and you have good food and things are kind of generally going well for you, the sun's shining. So exhaustion is one part. What's maybe another part? Lydia? The difference of hope. Yeah, for sure, the difference of hope, right? You have discouragement. There's that temporary sense of like, oh, that's, that's crummy that that happened. But when you're anchored in a larger hope for that day, that week, that month, for your life, for eternity, it acts as a buoy, right, doesn't it? It kind of holds you up. Weariness speaks to, is this ever actually going to end? I want to believe, yes, but it's harder for me to connect with that. And I think a third element is just how long the discouragement lasts. It's relatively easy to bounce back from a short discouragement, but when the window gets pulled out to, in David's case, years, it's not as easy as just rolling out of bed and saying like, oh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Awesome. There's a weariness that sets in when we're tired, when we're starting to flirt with giving up hope, when we are kind of in this groundhog day of, I don't think things are changing. And in this private moment that we're let in on in chapter 27, verse 1, we read that David says to himself, or other translations will say, thinks to himself, or other translations will say, says in his heart, he's talking to himself, he says, you know what, one of these days Saul's going to catch up with me. I can't run forever. So the best thing I could do is just to run to the land of the Philistines on the west coast. Uh, Saul will give up his search. I'm going to escape this game of cat and mouse, and I'm going to find relief, right? He doesn't say that, but that's what David's looking for. He wants relief and release from this never-ending, grinding weariness and this threat from Saul. He wants to find peace. I'm not going to ask you to share, but just by a show of hands, how many people here have experienced a kind of weariness And it might be for your whole life, it might be localized to a particular relationship or context, but how many of you have experienced a weariness that really, really ramps up and tempts you to just honestly give up? How many have experienced that? Yeah. And that's important. The reason why I'm asking us to raise our hands is because it's important, if we're not hearing it through David's story, is to acknowledge it as a community like being a Christian, being a faithful Christian, being a, uh, someone who is genuinely trying to seek God doesn't protect you always from that kind of weariness. We live in a broken, fallen world where other people make decisions that can bring weariness into our lives, where the corruption of sin mars all the different dimensionalities of our life. And we can just find ourselves in long stretches where things aren't, not only are things not working out, but they're actually very, very difficult. David has had his divine destiny prophetically affirmed by four people. Remember the people? Samuel, Jonathan, Abigail, good. Just finish the word when I say it. And then Saul, four times. He's had other people say, God's got amazing things in store for you. It doesn't even matter to David in this moment. Here in this verse, we find himself listening to his own voice under the weight of weariness. Now, sometimes when we listen to kind of that voice, that intuition, um, 
there are things that are wise and we kind of get the right intuition around things. But that's almost never the case when we're weary. Uh, weariness allows sort of the worst framing of the situation to sort of come across as the only way to think about the situation. Notice that David speaks to himself with certainty. He's not even asking any questions. He's saying, one of these days I will be destroyed at Saul's hand and the best thing I can do, I've thought through all the options and the best option is for me to run away and go into the land of the enemy. And notice the very, very subtle hint here that ties all the way back to the book of Judges. We see David doing, in this moment of weariness, something that everybody in Judges is condemned for, and that is doing what seemed right in his own eyes. The results of this, and we'll talk more about this next week, are actually pretty devastating. In verses two through six, David flees to Gath. He pledges his allegiance to the Philistine king Achish, which is a metaphor of abandonment of God and friendliness with the world and anti-God cultures. And then in verses 7 to 12, David spends a year and a half raiding desert people who, if you're going to look into it, you're going to find out, oh, they were actually the enemies of God when they were coming into the promised land. That is, that is true. And so it sounds like a good thing until you look into the details and you realize that what David has been doing is lying and plundering and killing in order to stay alive. And it's no accident that God is conspicuously absent from this entire chapter. There's no reference to God at all. This is a book of history. And often, not everything we read in Scripture is um, prescriptive, meaning we're supposed to copy the pattern. Some of it is descriptive. It's just describing someone taking a course of action that is actually really, really damaging. Anti-God, anti-life anti their calling, and that's what we're seeing David do here. Many people think of David's low point as his coercive relationship with Bathsheba and subsequent killing of Bathsheba's husband, and that might be the lowest point of David's life, but the events recorded in this chapter are a pretty close second. They really are meant to be understood that darkly. So we're going to dive into those details next week, but I want to put two things in front of you that I think just verse 1 helps us to see. David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. The first thing that I want to acknowledge that's very important for you to understand is that trusting God is not easy. Sometimes as Christians or as pastors or the songs we sing or the people that we listen to talk as if trusting God is easy. And it's not easy, especially not when different promises that we think um, we possess in Christ or different aspirations that we have for ourselves or our marriages or our family or our friendships or our lives, those don't seem to be manifesting in our lives. They don't seem to be landing in our lap. When we go through illness, long illness, exhausting illness, illness where you're tempted to not believe and trust anymore, that's not easy to trust God in those situations. In relationships that have stalemated or deteriorated that you thought, these, this, these were a sure thing in my life. That's not easy to trust God in that. 
We can be tired from life on the run or in the wilderness like David is, where we just don't feel at home and things don't seem to be coming together and we feel detached from ourselves and our calling and other people and it just feels awkward. But it wasn't for a day or a week or a month. It was maybe for years. That's not easy to trust God. When we have an extended season of disappointment with God, whether it's a season of singleness or some kind of dislocation or unfulfillment, um, a season of loss or rootlessness, that can be very difficult to trust God. And it's important for us to acknowledge that. And coming out of that, to also understand that weariness is a really powerful thing. It can be a really destructive thing in your life. Weariness not only blinds us to the good things that we have, but it magnifies the negative and can often lead to catastrophizing. I'm, I'm surely going to die. The best thing, literally the best thing in this scenario would be for me to give up and to turn my back on God and God's people and just go hide with the enemy. So I want to share very briefly five ways that we individually and we together need to go to war against weariness because it's actually a really dangerous state to find ourselves in. If there's nothing else you take from 27 verse 1 is take that, the, the, the danger of weariness. Trusting God is hard. Weariness is powerful. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to keep turning to God. David doesn't do that. Maybe he has up to now, but this is the first time we see him turn to himself. And says, I'm just going to kind of think through this on my own. God isn't mentioned in the chapter. David doesn't stop to seek God's counsel or perspective or power. There's a very simple application here. No matter how discouraged, weary, tired, no matter the spiritual numbness that seems to be in play where it doesn't seem to matter, you don't feel anything, do not underestimate the simple practice of continuing to be daily in Scripture and in prayer. If you don't know where to start, grab a home altar, talk to me, use a Bible app, open up the Gospels, just cycle through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read a chapter or half a chapter a day, again and again. Just keep doing it and keep praying about the themes that are there. Do not underestimate how important that practice is, especially when you are weary. Monitor your inputs. It's really important to be aware of social media because social media, in whatever form it exists, has a really perverse incentive to place discouragement and fear in front of you because you're many times larger, uh, more inclined to click on things that have a hook of discouragement or fear. And it's very easy to get overwhelmed and to get pulled into discouragement. So one of the things that I've been thinking through is how do I engage social media to the barest minimum? And I haven't always done it well, but I'm trying to move away from using it as any form of entertainment or distraction. Because what you're doing when you're spending extended time on social media is you are doom scrolling. You're actually inviting into the front end of your consciousness all the things that are wrong in your city, your world. Um, you are feeding yourself with fear and anger. And I know some people are like, well, I really like to be in the know and I like to kind of know what's going on. You would be surprised how much you'll, you will still feel in the know of things that are important when you don't check social media at all over the course of a day or different uh, ways of engaging the news or if you do it for like five minutes. You can get caught up really fast. 
Number three, prioritize rest and recovery. We need and getty places, places of refreshment. We need retreats. We need Sabbaths. We need quality food. We need movement. We need company, people who encourage and bless us. And so look for those kinds of retreats. Make your own. Um, I know, you know, I often hear from young families like, oh, it's really hard. Well, I know of a young husband who just uh, gifted his wife an overnight away from the kids, and he took the kids for a night. There are things that we can do with each other, even though it's hard to like have this big extended, maybe you're not going to have a five-day retreat at Kingsfold. Maybe you can't even have a full day of Sabbath, but can you work and share and share that burden and create a morning or a few hours where people can find rest, maybe sleep in or go for a hike, take time and worship. Number four, evaluate your self-talk. It's really important to be mindful of the things that you say in your heart. We're learning that psychologically. Um, become aware of what you are telling yourself and then fact check it against God's word. This is why it's important to be in God's word because the things that you say to yourself are gonna sound very, very convincing. Yeah, the best thing to do in this situation is to give up. I've thought about it. Is that actually the best situation or does that seem what's right to you in your own eyes? I mean, it might be true, but what if it's not? Like, what if the truth is something much more hopeful that's grounded in God's word, but you're not aware of that, so you just allow this catastrophic scenario to take root? I mean, that's heartbreaking to think, right? That we can convince ourselves to go down a path that we think is right or inevitable when we don't have the resources to fact check it against the word of God. And lastly, check in with other people. It might be easier to notice David doesn't go to God in this passage than to notice he doesn't go to other people either. He just says he was himself. Doesn't fact check his perspective with Abigail, any of his military commander, no one else. He completely isolates himself. He trusts that his own perspective is enough and he kind of cocoons himself from not only God's input, but other people's input. Which when you read the rest of the chapter, again, it's really heartbreaking to think what, what could have been avoided had he just gone to Abigail and said, I feel really like I'm in the pit and I really feel like this. I feel like my time is coming. I feel like there's no hope. I feel like I need to run away. I can't do this anymore, Abigail. What would have happened if he just would have bared his heart in the presence of God to his wife or to a trusted friend? And so at major decision points in our life, especially when we're weary, and especially during times of discouragement, we should check in with other believers, other trusted believers who we know love us, because they might save us from going down a really destructive path. One preacher that I listened to this week said, never underestimate the power of a conversation with someone who fears God and loves you. Never underestimate the power of a conversation with someone who fears God and loves you. So those are five ways that you can kind of go to war against weariness. But I also want to recognize that there are people listening who are already there. They're, they're not trying to prevent it or they don't feel like they're early in that process. They feel like they are weary. And they feel like they are in the pit. 
and it's really hard for them to hear words like hope or change or God's power, and it just not to just bypass them because it feels like it's not for them. And those people are maybe listening to a message like this and they're thinking, well, Jeff, this sermon would have been helpful last month or a year ago or five years ago, but there's been so much momentum that has overtaken my life in this area or as a whole. I, I totally get where David's coming from. So I want you to hear this promise from the lips of Jesus himself. He says, come to me, all you who are, are wearied and are burdened. Not come to me so that we can, you know, prevent that, although that's part of the Spirit's ministry in our lives. But Jesus has a specific invitation to come to him if we are wearied, if we are in that place. He says, I will give you rest. I'll give you the relief and the peace that you're looking for. You can even take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this morning, if you find yourself deeply weary, I want you to hear that invitation from Jesus. But I don't want to sort of spiritualize that too much. I want to explain to you what that would look like. like you might say, well, I know I should go to Jesus, but what is that? I don't even know what that looks like. This is what it looks like. There's lots of ways it could look like, but here's at least one, so you have no excuse. You set aside 30 minutes. You start with a time of worship and reflection, five, 10 minutes. Write down, it's very important to write it down. Write down and say out loud all the things that you are wearied and burdened by. And as all the detail you can. Don't just say, my life, get specific. Out loud, cry out to Jesus for help and ask him to take each burden and then invite him to strengthen and renew you. And don't just rip through that quickly. Take a half an hour. Bookend it with prayer and worship and in the middle, write and pray and get into a place where you can be honest with God and honest with yourself. That's not a magic formula but that actually puts us in a spot. That's one way that it looks like to actually go to Jesus in your weariness and not just say like, yeah, 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 I get that. I'm gonna say a prayer, like, God help me. No, 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 slow down. Go to Jesus in an intentional, sequential way. Our final worship song speaks to the weariness of the soul that can overtake any of us. And I'm gonna actually invite you to stay seated for this final song. And I want you to listen to the song. Obviously, you can sing it quietly um, as you feel led. But if there are those here who would like to respond in real time to this invitation of Jesus, then during this song, while everyone else is seated, so I know it's a little awkward, just come forward, and I'm just going to have a little bowl of oil, and I will just gently anoint your forehead with the cross and pray a blessing of rest and peace over your life. You don't have to share why you're coming forward. You can come forward on behalf of someone else who's not here today. You're praying for them, but you're weary for what they're going through. It could be something personal. It could be, maybe you don't even, you can't even um, localize all the different, but you're like, I, I feel weary. And if I'm honest, I, I have felt like giving up in a lot of ways. 
giving up on God, giving up on my faith, giving up on this relationship, giving up on this opportunity. David was there. We can find ourselves there. Jesus promises us rest. So remain seated. Anyone who wants to come forward for a short blessing and prayer to do so over the next song.